you for responding. Honestly, I was really scared we wouldn't have anyone to talk about this with because we don't even know how to start talking about it. I'm excited you guys were looking for somebody because I've been geeked since the beginning. I've watched Atlanta since the beginning. I was so excited for them to finally come back on. And then the season that we got, I was like, I didn't expect this, but I'm excited. (laughs) Yeah, I've always wanted to watch it. And then I I put it off because I like binging things after they've had a couple seasons underneath. Mm -hmm. And I've only heard just such great things. And so it took both Gabe and I by storm so much so that like I was telling you, I had to pause and wait a little bit of time to like contemplate and think about what I just witnessed. Right. Because it's so crazy. Yes. But we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're talking about Atlanta season three. This is a show, specifically this season, that Gabe and I just absolutely adore. But it's so chock full of subject matter and subtext and social commentary that we don't feel like we even know where to begin talking about it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> every episode is like... Yeah. I think it was you that said like every scene... Every, every scene, yeah. It's like a conversation. Is a conversation. It's insane. So yeah, we feel really ill-equipped and sort of underqualified to even discuss it. But we enlisted some help from somebody who has a podcast that discusses social and political issues. Someone smarter. A lot of the same ones that are tackled in this show. Uh, We have Kenyatta on the cast. Hi. There you go. (laughs) Thank you guys for having me. Oh, thank you for being on. Kenyatta co-hosts a podcast called Kenyatta and Jack Save the World, where they discuss societal and political issues, and it is a great listen. If any of our listeners care at all about what's happening in our world or government and the effects it may have in us smaller people who live in the United States, Mm -hmm. um, and something we'll be promoting on the cast in our Instagram going forward. Definitely, we appreciate it, yes. So my question to you, Kenyatta, is how did you and Jack meet and uh, come up with the idea for your podcast? Where did that come from? To make a long story as short as possible, which is... (laughs) <laughs> Not easy. Um, Jack and I actually know each other from grade school. Oh, wow. Wow. Both of our fathers were active duty Air Force. And so his family ended up stationed at the same place mine was at. My family had been there since about third grade and his family moved on base in the sixth grade. Wow. From there, we went through all the rest of school together up until graduation. And then, you know, life happens part ways. Mm-hmm. I believe he went active duty army for a while. I went to college and then maybe he'll probably correct me on this, but maybe six, seven years ago or so, we kind of came back touch on Facebook as what tends to happen. And we found out we had a lot in common, including the same weird sense of humor. <laughs> and then as things, especially in the last four or five years or so is Things got bubbling up in this country, and and I read them things that he would post, and he would read things I would post, and we'd comment and like on each other's things. He had actually started his own podcast last fall and asked me to be a guest because Mm -hmm. of our similar viewpoints on things. Mm -hmm. And so I said, sure. And apparently our episode, or the episode I guested on, was such a big hit, quote, Mm -hmm. that he was like, if we just sat down and had conversations like that all the time, we could save the world. I <laughs> said, yes, that's a fantastic idea. I said, we should do a podcast. And he was like, we should. <laughs> so so we kind of tossed around the idea for a few weeks. And the first week in December, Kenyon and Jack Save the World made its debut. So That's awesome. I really like your guys' stuff. And I really think that people 
should be listening. You leave that space open for people that even may not agree to be able to join in on the conversation. Yes. We try our best. Yes. You do a good job. I really, really like it. And I love Jack's voice as well. He's got not just the sound of it, but I love I love what he has to say. You know? Oh, yeah. I think both of you bring a lot to the table. Obviously, our differences are apparent, but yeah. we don't operate like in an echo chamber. Yeah. We don't necessarily have the same opinion about things at the same sure. time. So that's what makes it a good conversationalist. Yeah. And plus, we care about learning about stuff. We don't yeah. like to jump on bandwagons and go with what everybody else is talking about. We mm-hmm. like to address and attack difficult or sticky kind of yeah. issues and situations. So, so far, so good. So, yeah. I had thought about doing a WTF of the week. <laughs> but i don't want to put her on the spot and i don't have one myself but i love that you guys do that on your show it seems to be no slim pickings at all to just (laughs) find something ridiculous going on at any given moment in this country so yeah yeah for sure unfortunately uh well let's jump into atlanta do you normally gravitate toward surrealist stuff like atlanta i mean atlanta caught my eye i think just by a fluke because mm. it was maybe like halfway through the first season. Mm-hmm. I think I was reading something online because I'd heard of Donna Glover before. Yeah. yeah. So just on a fluke one day, I think I pulled it up somewhere and binge watched it up until the current point. And by like the second episode, the one where Ernest is sitting in jail waiting to be processed. Oh, yeah. They had me. I was like, what is this? And why do I love it already? Yeah. It was just something about it. And what I was thinking was in a way to be a black American or any person of color in this country is almost a surrealistic experience Mm. anyway. Mm -hmm. So what I liked about Atlanta and not necessarily other shows that dabble in surrealism, but like certain kinds of shows that can give you something that looks ridiculous and make it make sense. Right. So that's what appealed to me. And plus, like with Atlanta, it's it's good writing. It's good acting. Yeah. It's kind of a dark humor that you laugh at stuff you know you shouldn't be laughing at. Sure. But like for me personally, it had a lot of relevance as well. I don't necessarily come from any place like Atlanta, but mm. I understood a lot of what they were talking about and things that they were going through. So I like good TVs and good movie. It doesn't matter whether or not we're talking about a majority black cast or mm-hmm. puppies or whatever the case may be. <laughs> if it's good, it's good. It really doesn't matter to me who's starring in it. Yeah. Well, you just heard the name Donald Glover, and it's really difficult to talk about Atlanta without talking about Donald Glover. <laughs> Donald Glover is an actor and also a musician who goes by the name Childish Gambino. He's been doing stuff since 1998. He's been in shows like Girls and 30 Rock, but kind of blew up with Community. He was in The Martian. He was in the first Tom Holland Spider-Man film, sort of had a cameo. Then he was in the Star Wars spinoff Solo, the Han Solo film as Lando. And then he was the voice of Simba in a live-action Lion King. And then my personal favorite thing that he's done, which we'll probably reference a few times, was he was in the 2018 music video for his song, This Is America, which was like my personal favorite, I think, piece of art that year. I absolutely adored that. I watched it dozens of times. Was that 2018? Yeah, it was 2018. Jeez. It was a while ago. Yeah, it feels like forever ago. Yeah. He did a short film after that too, didn't he? I can't remember what it was called. But it was like an extension. It was like several of his songs put into the film. Yeah, I remember that. Because he put out an album or something. Yeah. 
that coincided with that, I think. That was cool. But Donald Glover dips heavily into mainstream pop culture, like I was just saying, but then has this artistic side where he gets to explore his voice and, and make art about subjects that seem like much more personal for him. And then he also, like David Lynch, who we, we talk about a lot in this show, oftentimes refuses to comment on his art. He's like a no-comment artist. And he created the show Atlanta, which we're talking about, for FX, uh, which is also Hulu, uh, if you guys want to stream it on there, with his brother as one of the writers, Stephen Glover, who is his younger brother, and I think also kind of got his start because of this show. And the visual style is also cultivated by Donald Glover, who directs a lot of the episodes, and but also mainly by someone named Hiro Murai. He's directed most of the episodes, I think like around 20 or 21. And he also directed This Is America, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and lots of music videos. He directed a few episodes of Barry, which is like a dark comedy on HBO. Yeah. HBO. And a few episodes of the other HBO series, Station Eleven, that just came out last year. You like that show? Oh, yeah. That was excellent. We had thought about watching it, but we haven't gotten around to it yet. It's based on a book, which I didn't know. So It deals with like a pandemic, doesn't it? That's what's so freaky about it. Yes. Like the very first episode, they go right into it. And I was sitting there like, hmm. <laughs> again, it's one of those ones where you have good uh-huh. writing, good plotting, and very good acting. That was a good one for me this past year. Was it a limited series or did it set it up for more? It was a limited series. I want to say it was eight or 10 episodes, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So now we'll talk about what Atlanta is like about. Like, what is it actually about? What is Atlanta about? (laughs) That's the question. Well, on the surface, it's about a few friends living in a lower income part of Atlanta. Donald Glover plays Ernest Marks. He has an on-again, off-again relationship with Zazie Beetz's character, who is Vanessa, and they have a little girl together. Ern is trying to be the manager for his cousin's rap career, played by Brian Tyree Henry as Alfred Miles, or Al, a.k.a. Paperboy. Yeah. He has a tag-along friend who is kind of like a spiritual guide (laughs) to the show, which is Lakeith Stanfield's Darius. And the show essentially follows these four main characters, and their antics in or around Atlanta, Georgia for the first two seasons, and then abroad in the third season. It's tough to pin down in genre what this show is, but it's not just a straight drama. It frequently breaks the rules of storytelling and filmmaking, and will have whole episodes dedicated to tangential plot lines or ideas, especially in the third season. In the first two seasons, we have weird, surreal encounters on a bus. There's an invisible car... (laughs) Running people over, there's uh, black Justin Bieber, there's a teenage <laughs> black kid who identifies as a 35-year-old white man. I totally forgot about yeah. that. That was a great bit. And he doesn't understand why <laughs> nobody recognizes him as a 35-year-old white man. Donald Glover playing a white person named Teddy Perkins, which was a standout episode. Terrifying. Different characters often fighting for their lives and a party, what may or may not have been at uh, Drake's house, Drake's birthday party, which Drake was not at. His cardboard cutout was, though. And the show is constantly meandering from the projected story to deviate onto subplots or ideas that often break down social, economic, or political themes. So while one episode may follow the main storyline, the next episode may not follow that storyline and may appear to be a completely unrelated episode and may even follow new characters we have never seen before. 
But the thing about Atlanta is that it is always very intentional, and there is usually a reason behind what we're seeing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Donald Glover has been on record comparing the show to Twin Peaks, which is a show created by David Lynch, who we talk about on this podcast a lot as like a master of surrealist art. He created Twin Peaks back in like 89, 90. Donald Glover has called this Twin Peaks with Rappers. <laughs> He also is referred to it as Curb Your Enthusiasm with rappers, which is uh, Larry David Seinfeld. Again, really absurdist situational comedy. But when we talk about surrealism or absurdism, Gabe, do you want to do you want to define that a little bit at all? Can, could uh, you without looking at the notes? Because you you often do you dip you dabble in the I surreal dabble. and the absurd, and I I feel like you would have a good definition of it. Surrealism, uh, I've probably given better definitions in the past. Off the top of my Monday fried brain. I'm going to have to say, how do you summarize surrealism? It's like a strangeness. Oh, I like to think of it as a, a pervasive sense of wrongness that is kind of uh, just like quietly laying over everyday life. Mm-hmm. But like, but the, my favorite surrealism is where it's just, it's like normal everyday situations. And then there's something just, just a little bit uh, tweaked, you know, that's, um, it could lean towards horror. It could, it could lean just towards like, absurdity or something unusual to uh, often provoke, you know, some kind of anything, conversation or emotion, feeling. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I don't know. That was probably a really bad description. (laughs) No, 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 no. That's actually really good because in contrast to the, we'll call it like the the term of the day, which is Afro-surrealism, something we'll be talking about in a little bit. It takes that kind of surrealistic, absurdist aspect, but then makes it normal like it normalizes it donald glover has been on record saying the purpose of the television show atlanta is to let other people know how it feels to be black glover wants viewers to feel empathy and compassion for black people since the show gives them a humble authentic and thorough view of their lives seasons one and two specifically won a bunch of awards including golden globes NAACP image awards emmys uh, producers, directors, and writers guild awards, critics choice, and screen actors guild as well. You know, it's it's very widely well renowned in a lot of the awards ceremonies and being appreciated for what it's doing. Yes. Season one aired in September 2016, and then season two aired in March 2018. It took close to four years for their third season, which just aired in March of 2022, um, and then recently just ended. Uh, and they have already announced the fourth season, which I think is airing this year as well, like in the fall, if I remember correctly. That's what I heard. Um, is it the final season? Yeah, it's the fourth and final season. And there was a delay in production due to scheduling conflicts because the the cast, since the show is created, have just blown up in their status and like being very famous and all doing different things. So scheduling was a huge thing. And then COVID hit, so that delayed it even further. Yeah. But specifically with season three... Donald Glover had a famous tweet that he tweeted and then deleted uh, comparing season three and four of Atlanta to being just as good as other shows in television history, like Sopranos or Twin Peaks saying the show is going to blow people's minds. He then deleted it. (laughs) But I, but looking at it, I'm like, I think, I think Atlanta is one of the best shows I think that could potentially be ever created. Um, Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, and full stop yeah <laughs> season three 
has yeah has not just been the best season of Atlanta yet, but it's also one of the best and will be probably going forward one of the most artful and historical shows in television history. Like for what television can do and also say about art mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. as an art form. But yeah, so let's let's jump into season three. <laughs> Maybe I could ask you because you were saying that the first episode inspired you a lot. Yes. And I'm curious what hit you, what landed on you while watching it. Specifically that first episode, that one in particular, actually, because it starts out with uh, what a roughly five minute yeah. separate scene with two guys in a boat in the middle of a lake at night. Yes. That particular scene and the story that the white guy whose name is Ernest yeah. tells the black guy about this lake was made because it was formed over the remains of a black town. Yeah. And while that story isn't exactly true, that's partially true. And even though they don't say what lake they're on, the fact that they're presumably in Atlanta or in Georgia means they're Mm. probably talking about Lake Lanier. Mm. Lake Lanier was built back in the fifties by the U S army Corps of engineers as a way to build a reservoir for Atlanta and to help with uh, preventing flooding in surrounding cities. But before that, in the early 1900s, part of the area, part of the land that was used for the lake was the area for all black town called Oscarville. And in the summer of 1912, two separate incidents caused the white residents in the surrounding county to uprise and force nearly a thousand and some black residents out of their homes, off of their land. And either the black residents either just abandoned their land altogether, which allowed the white residents to come in and just take it by paying property taxes. Or if they were given the opportunity to sell the land, they sold it for a fraction of what they paid for it. And the two incidences were about a week apart, and they both involved, unfortunately, violent incidences against young white women in the area. But both of those incidents were pinned on black residents. There was no proof of them having ever been involved with anything to do with these young ladies. But unfortunately, especially in the second case, two of the young men were, um, well, one of the young men was killed or hung outside of the local jail. And like I said, in the weeks after, that's when the the white mob rose up and pretty much drove all the residents out of that area. And we're talking, like I said, about a thousand or so residents within a matter of months. So while, you know, there had been no black town in that area for decades and the land had changed hands up until the point that the government bought it, there's some truth to the story that he was telling as they sat in the boat at the beginning. So that that part is true. The rest of the episode has to do with a young man that um, acts up in class, principal calls his mother, his mother's fed up with him. And eventually through a call to social services, he gets taken away and placed in a foster home with three other black children. The foster parents are two white women, a married couple. And to put it mildly, the women were bananas crazy <laughs> to put it mildly that was also based on a true story i don't know if you guys remember a few is years it, ago Devonte hart was that- yes yes and while the story of Devonte hart and his foster brother and sisters and his foster parents that ended 
tragically, but the episode had a much, much better outcome. Is it like kind of like a revisionist history kind of thing? Absolutely. And I think like you were saying earlier, Stephen, like when you had to pause and just really absorb what you were looking at, knowing that that episode was made up mostly of real things, real life things, like even the slap that the grandfather gives a little boy in the beginning, that was a real viral video. And then when he's jumping up on the desk dancing, when they find out they're going to see Black Panther 2, that was a viral video. What? Strangely enough, it's a viral video of a little boy dancing on his desk because his whole class gets to go see Black Panther. So that was like right before Black Panther came out some years ago. It's based on a video just like that. Gotcha. So like you were saying earlier, Stephen, that was one of those episodes when I got done with it. I just had to sit with it for a moment, especially considering how tragic the real life story was. And I was like, damn, hmm, that was wild. Like I was literally just shaking my head like, what did I just watch? Yeah. Like, what is he doing here? And then for the last very last scene for Ernest to be waking up in bed, like, was he dreaming this? Right. Is this what it's going to be about? We're going to have like dream episodes and it's not to get ahead of ourselves, but that's kind of the idea that I had as we went through the season was like, are these dreams possibly could be, don't know. But yeah, that first episode for me, yeah, that did it. I'm like, okay, this, this season going to be something completely different Yeah, than what we're used to. Yeah. Because up to season three and season one and two, it ended in a place where even though I was doing like specific kind of spin-off episodes. It was still pretty linear as far as the story goes. Mm-hmm. And then in season three, the first episode opens up with something completely just different from following the main characters. Season two ends with them going to Europe. Yes. And then season three opens up with that first episode. And then the second episode there's a like an off comment about how they had been to Europe touring in the past mm-hmm. as if this is a different time in Europe that we're picking up with them. Yes. And it's like everything like there's no there's no like tangible place where it feels like we could put our feet on the ground and, and ground ourselves to to the continuity of what's actually happening anymore in this season. You know? Yeah, it does feel like that. And it took like repeat viewings. For yeah. me to actually get any sense of, of time, like, for instance, in the second episode, when Ernest goes to meet with, I guess he's the promoter at the um, the venue. Oh, right. Yeah. And says, yeah, uh, paper more needs 20 grand. Yeah. And he just goes and runs and gets a little lockbox. I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, not. And then I think Ernest says something about we played here last year when right. we were on tour. So it's yes. been at least a year ish. Right. But I also got the sense that. Obviously, some time has passed because Paperboy is real popular overseas, obviously. Yeah. yeah. And they have that much clout that Ernest can go to that man and say he needs 20 grand and mm-hmm. he just gives it to him. Yeah. I'm like, what have they been doing? Yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's huge. Yeah. Especially considering where season two left off, where mm-hmm. Al was not convinced of Ernest's um, capabilities. Like, yeah. why do I need you for my manager anymore? What are you doing for me? Right. And like, he's he's starting to prove it as early as that second episode. Bam, yeah. bam, bam, bam. Yep. Just getting stuff done. Yeah, because that was the big question for the first two seasons. There was a lot of doubt cast in the mind of those characters. And, and it didn't seem like that was as much of on the forefront of the minds of the characters 
as they they tried to figure out their relationships because obviously they're cousins and in in the end of season two the finale they kind of tie that up and Ern kind of proves himself by putting the gun in the other person's bag and then there's a little bit of a thing in episode eight of season three this season where there's the doubt cast in Al's mind about who owns his masters. And then he asks Ern in the, in the end. And then Ern's like you do, which makes it seem like he is a good manager and he's sticking out for Al, which is nice. Mm -hmm. But apart from that, it's like there's, there's very scarcely continuity. And the other big thing about the lack of continuity is figuring out what the hell van is doing this season, (laughs) especially because van, and Ern have a daughter, Lottie, who's back in Atlanta, supposedly. And Van just decides to go to join them in Amsterdam and run around. And nobody really knows, like, what she's doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, that part, I should also just take a quick moment to say this. The show stresses me out. <laughs> like, Why? For, for a number of reasons. Well, part of it, I think, is the Afro-surrealism aspect which we could talk about now or in, in a moment but the fact that I, I i can't relate to certain things like was it episode four with the guy from national treasure the white guy who it's essentially the ta-nehisi coates case for reparations episode where like that stressed me out and then another episode with the white family and the nanny oh, yeah. going to the, going to the memorial that stressed me out. And then, Oh, and then the one with the kid in the, in black and white at high school where he is a uh, light skinned black. He has a black father, but he doesn't identify as black while he's in high school. He's a white girlfriend. And then a millionaire shows up and decides he's going to pay the tuition of anyone that can essentially prove that they're black. So <laughs> all these kids have to go into a room and prove that they're black by a bunch of questions that again, I don't have any uh, history with like even knowing like where those questions are coming from. Like frame a reference type thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I just feel so tense and empathetic, which is again, part of the Afro surrealist aspect. Cause that's the whole point of it is to feel empathy. Like okay. I had read earlier, that was the whole point with the show is Donald Glover wants you to try to understand what it's like to be black and empathize with what it's like to feel this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, I just ended up being so stressed at certain parts. You just never know what's going to happen. He, sh- he shows up to the school with a blowtorch or a, a flamethrower. And there's another <laughs> kid there with a flamethrower. And you just like, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, are these characters going to live or die? And, and it's a show about rappers, sort of. It's not really, but it is ultimately. Like, that's the, the initial hook. But it's not really a show about rappers. And in every circumstance, it seems like a character, they're fighting for their lives constantly. Another episode is like where Al, he begins the episode and uh, Darius says, don't don't end up like that guy in the street. And then the episode goes, you, you see Liam Neeson and then he ends up being the guy in the street. And you, you're like, why? Why do I feel so anxious throughout this whole thing? And I think yeah, you feel the same way, right? About the anxiety or stress? Yeah. Well, I think it's a huge credit to not just the writing, but also just the technical direction of the show. Yes. Like even yeah. the even the way that they move the camera, it's such a masterfully, it's like a masterclass in tension. Yeah. And I felt that was like there on one level in the first two seasons when they're in Atlanta. But I think having them in Amsterdam or whatever it was in Europe in the third season, 
because it's a completely new environment. Yeah. You you really easily get into the shoes of those characters, and I think, yeah, every every single scene, it feels like there's there could be something lurking right around the corner to thwart, you know, our here our our main characters. Yeah, and especially in the in the step out episodes where it's like mm-hmm. it, those episodes are just kind of nightmarish for somebody. It's yeah. somebody's nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard that expressed before in some of the recaps and reviews I've been reading. It's it's a nightmare for somebody. Yeah. Like who exactly? I think it's my, I think it's my nightmare. <laughs> it can be subjective though, honestly. Right. Jumping back to it was episode eight. Right. Yeah, where Al makes a new friend at the museum. Um, <laughs> new jazz. New jazz. <laughs> and, you know, he, he realized he, he, he's ended up at the bar in the cancel club right next to Liam Neeson. The cancel club. <laughs> and Liam Neeson is like, no, I still hate the whole lot of you because you yeah. almost cost me my career. <laughs> and Al's like, well, did you even learn anything from this? And hmm. Liam Neeson's like, yeah, white people don't have to learn anything if they don't want to. And I got to tell you guys, and your listening audience, don't yeah. hate me. I busted out laughing when he said that because I have seen that played out in countless different ways. I don't know how many times in the course of my life, like trying to talk to somebody about some kind of issue, some kind of social issue. And they're just like, hmm. and then they just go ahead and believe what they want to believe. So, and of course, you know, I get, I give all, all props to Liam Neeson for playing that little bit like he did. Like, yeah, we know he had a moment years ago. He had what we call human experience. We all have them. Hmm. He said some things that were regrettable. I'm sure he's learned a lesson in there somewhere. But for him to play that bit as straight faced as he did and said, no, I don't have to do anything. I don't want to. I was like. (laughs) Wow. Like it was like an epiphany. Like I'm sitting there in my living room watching. I was like, that's what it is. And I'm not saying I've had it happen most of the time when I've talked to other whether white folks or white folks in general about anything. Mm -hmm. But there the times that it has happened stand out enough for me to make that particular statement ring very, very loud. Mm -hmm. And I think it kind of encompasses what this season is about to me is that even when the four of them leave Atlanta, leave Georgia, leave the United States, they still find that somehow, some way, whiteness encroaches whatever they're trying to do, whatever successes they're trying to make out of their lives, it still creeps in on them. Yeah. That's how I, that's how I feel about it as a whole. Yeah. And that, that includes the, you know, the regular storyline and then, you know, the standalone episodes that we had. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I, I read a lot of reviews that said a lot of similar stuff to that, that, well, or I should say commentary. Mm-hmm. That was more like, even while they're traveling abroad, they're still encountering this kind of, uh, I don't know, prejudice or bias, you know, racism, <laughs> racism. Yeah. But, but it's, it's a specific kind of racism. It, you might be talking about some like casual racism, like they don't think anything of it. Yeah, like subconscious almost. Yeah. Yeah. Or yeah. inherent bias has a lot to do with how these people are thinking. Yeah. Um, especially somebody just mentioned it the second episode, Santa yeah. Claus is coming to town. Oh my gosh. <laughs> with the with the blackface. 
Yeah. And and the 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 guy's like, no, no, no. He fell down a chimney. That's why his face is black. And Ernest <laughs> like, yeah, uh-huh. good way to rewrite that. And it's it, it that's one of those moments like, and I've I've talked to people that are just that tone deaf about things. And I'm just sitting here like, so you don't you don't see that at all. And you could maybe give you know, the natives of Amsterdam, the benefit of a doubt and say, well, they may not realize the relevance of what blackface is in America, but they're hosting an American rapper in the concert mm-hmm. later on that night before the concert starts. And, and Al says, I'm not doing the show because the whole audience is in blackface. Oh, yeah. Over the loudspeaker, you hear Smokey Robinson's rendition of jingle bells they are they're familiar with american black culture right so for them to act like these people walking around in blackface is not what you think it is is nonsense yeah that's just hilarious to me i'm like so you know all this about african-american culture but you don't know about this part of it or you choose not to know about this part of it yeah and like we still get you know stuff like this to this day here in the states like this is 2022 and we still have people trying to act like they don't know any better. Yeah. So yeah, that's very true. Yeah. Gabe and I talk about that quite often. <laughs> Willful ignorance. Yeah. Yes. Cause it's, absur- it's that, that to me is absurd. And when, like you were just saying, when there's a truth that's told to you and, and you just go, huh. And then just move on with your life as if you didn't just learn an invaluable lesson. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, Talk about Afro-surrealism. Are you familiar with this term at all? I am. And I couldn't necessarily give you a real succinct definition either about that. Yeah. Because, like, you know, as I mentioned earlier, it's 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 almost surrealistic to to operate in this country sometimes because people act out a certain way towards you and they think they're being completely normal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, again, being tone deaf right. or willfully ignorant or just cruel or you know Mm. things of that nature no big deal i don't know what you're upset about that's great no it's absurd and you're ridiculous but that person doesn't see their behavior that way meanwhile you know all of us people of color the community you know different communities right will come across certain situations or have conversations we're just we're dumbfounded like huh okay so much so that it stops being surprising after yeah. a while yeah so not really a definition per se but that's the way i see it i guess no that's that's exactly the definition of it um mm-hmm. i have a little background i can add as far as like where that term came from it used to be called afro surreal expressionism mm-hmm. um, and it was coined by amiri baraka in 1974 to specifically describe the work of henry dumas and then d scott miller in 2009 talked to amiri baraka to try to recoin the term to just afro surrealism and lose the expressionism part Mm -hmm. because he wanted to write what came to be known as the afro surreal manifesto for the san francisco bay guardian which is a very popular article that was written and people just refer to it now for uh it coining the term afro surreal because he had the permission from the original creator of the term and then the definition, like kind of taking from what you said and expanding on it, Afro-surrealism is more about the mystical and metaphorical, unlike sort of European surrealism, which is more empirical. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, It has aspects of the Harlem Renaissance, which was an intellectual and cultural revival of African-American music, dance, art, fashion, literature, theater, politics, and scholarship from the 1920s and 30s in Harlem. And it's different from Afrofuturism, which deals with speculations of the future. Afro-surrealism deals with future past as in the now. Mm -hmm. They say the impending doom has already happened, and they realize that like you were just saying, like you were just mm-hmm. describing, and is happening currently, and this is our reality right now. So this quote from, I think this is D. Scott Miller, who was the one that wrote the manifesto in 2009. Uh, Afrofuturism is a diaspora, intellectual, and artistic movement that turns to science, technology, and science fiction to speculate on black possibilities in the future. Uh, Afro-surrealism is about the present. There is no need for tomorrow's tongue speculation about the future. Concentration camps, bombed-out cities, famines, and enforced sterilization have already happened. Mm -hmm. To the Afro-surrealist, the tasers are here. The four horsemen rode through too long ago to recall. What is the future? The future has been around so long, it is now the past. Which is exactly what you were just describing. it most often deals with like an everyday lived experience, uh, fables, mythological morality tales, uh, magical resonating dreams, emotions, and images. It's a symptom of the way things are mm-hmm. constructed in weirdness and poetry beyond the real world. Uh, if, if you deal with something absurd every day of your life, something you feel isn't real, but it is true as if it is real. Mm-hmm. you're already living in a surreal situation without having to do anything at all. And that that's also, it. that's D Scott Miller. Again, the writer of that, the author of that article. That's it on the nose. And that's Atlanta. Like that's the show. You <laughs> it know? is, it is, you know, and I, um, you mentioned like fantasy and mythical yeah. aspects in that quote. And I think out of this season, the best example of that is episode five cancer attack oh yeah like i i went ahead and binged watched again over the weekend just so i'd be ready and i I have my little notes and i realized that just for who's listening i'm not trying to spoil it but at a stop in budapest al gets his uh gold cased phone stolen and um him and ernest and darius and their tag along buddy socks uh, try to figure out who stole the phone and they narrow in on the nephew of the, is it the promoter, mm-hmm. the venue promoter? Mm-hmm. Um, they think the nephew has stolen it. They call the nephew back in to the venue and they, you know, they're trying to play good cop, bad cop, weird cop, trying to interrogate this boy. And the boy seems to know a lot about Al. Like he's saying things that are so oddly coincidental mm-hmm. they in the audience can't help but believe he's the one who stole Al's phone and the boy's just strange regardless obviously and you can tell he's he's a lonely young man he doesn't have a lot of friends and he even you know says as much as he's talking to the three of them and eventually just talking to Al and the fact that he knows so many on the nose things about what's in Al's phone like the name of a girl that outdated in high school or the kind of uh car that he liked back when he was younger it's on the nose things that convinces al like there's no way he can know this unless he has my phone but then you get to the end of the episode 
and you find out it was actually their tag along campaign socks. They had the phone all along and tosses it out in the trash before he gets on the bus, you know, unbeknownst to the rest of them. That was like one of the clearest examples, I think, of surrealism, just hmm. and not even Afro, so just surrealism, period. Like it's it was a big fat red herring. Hmm. They were leading you into thinking this weird kid had stolen the phone because he's such a paperboy fan. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have anything to do with it at all. He just did all that just so he could spend time with them. Right. But it, like I said, it was so strange. They were like, oh, and I, I had a girl in the eighth grade that I love named Rose. And I wrote a song about it. Here it goes. And yeah, I was just staring at him in a weird kind of way. You know, we're talking about two diametrically different people connecting right. at that moment. Yeah. Like Al is saying, like, he feels like he's losing everything that made rapping fun. Mm. Like he hadn't been able to write anything for months. And the first proof of this is on this phone. And then meanwhile, this weird little kid is sitting across from him. And he says, I understood everything you said on your album. Like, it's weird how I won't even say weird. I'll take that back because this is actually something that we focus on on you know, like the podcast I co-host. Yeah. We may come from all different countless areas of the world and backgrounds and ethnicities, but we all, all, all have human experiences. Mm-hmm. And I think that episode was a fine example of what those can look like. Mm. Even though, you know, you found out somebody was dirty at the end and we don't see socks anymore for the rest of the season, thank God. But <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> But I think that episode was a good example of surrealism and human connection all mm-hmm. in one. And I think that's part of what was, you know, what I think they were trying to build into this season as well. So, yeah, I mean, beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. That episode, that episode was one of the ones that confounded me the most. So hearing you just now commentate on it, I felt it makes a lot more sense to me now. I mean, don't get me wrong. It confounds me. Like yeah. I, I'm still seeing, thinking about how did that weird little kid right. know about all of this stuff about Al? Like, yeah. was he one of those, you know, did he do like a deep dive on the internet somewhere and find <laughs> some stuff or was there something else at work here? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? That had to happen for these two people to be able to connect like they did. In Twin Peaks, there's often characters that will pop up like supernaturally and you, you don't know where they come from or what their background is, but they seem to have some sort of insider information on the main characters. And I feel like Atlanta does that a lot mm-hmm. as well. You just like, who is this character? How do they know so much? Like Lorraine in that ep- in episode eight, where she was the girl who was telling it like it is, you mm-hmm. know, but this character was one of them. I had read another article about that specific episode, episode five, that it was, um, an allegory for white people using black people to gain status or popularity because he shows him his song. Mm-hmm. He used that as an opportunity to show him his art, you know, mm-hmm. to try to use that to, uh, like to his advantage. And I thought that that was interesting. I can see that. I can yeah. see that. But the the fact that he he was a weird and and they said he was either 19 or 32, but Oh, right. <laughs> the kid was so strange. I think he even used that to his advantage. You'd be able to keep them in the room with him as long as possible because he wanted somebody yeah. to pay attention to him. Yeah. And the fact that it just so happens to be like his favorite rapper from the States 
is that much better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I can get I can get with that point definitely, definitely. I feel like socks was kind of the same way, right? Like socks took the phone, like he's the antagonist here, and him he does that to interject himself into the lives of these people, right? Mm-hmm. It's a pretty interesting like socks on his own is a pretty interesting, uh, bizarre conversation. <laughs> yeah, he was my least favorite <laughs> he gets it's so funny watching it back to knowing he has the phone because he gets he gets the most outraged out of everybody in the whole group at the missing phone and it's like he just needed something to like get hyped up for right yes and and to take to take the focus off of them thinking it might be him yeah and i think and in re-watching it this past weekend i think that particular action at least I'm not talking about like the first time we saw him, but at least in this episode, he did that just to get back at them making fun of him for suggesting that they go to the strip club later. He was mad because he felt excluded. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like, okay, I'm going to teach them something. And then he goes out of his way to act like he's just as upset as Al is when he's really not. He's just messing with them. So speaking of cancer attack, it was very similar to the uh, death doula episode with the Tupac like maybe still being alive. Remember that? Darius came in there and said, I, I felt the thug energy as soon as we right. walked in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was, um, I wasn't expecting that. The first time I watched it, I was not expecting that ending or yeah. that scene. Yeah. I've heard of death doulas before. And I think that that is actually a beautiful idea. But the way they did it there, I, I wasn't ready. I was I was just like Van. I was like, oh, what in the world are yeah. they doing? That's kind of horrifying. It was. And the fact that Darius is convinced that it's Tupac and that he's been hiding over there since 96. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Slowly dying of cancer, right? That's what he, he yes. came up with a story. Yes. But it really resonated with Van who, again, we didn't really know what was going on with her this season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the last episode is really revealing. And in the last episode, the person who wrote it didn't know it was going to be the finale episode for this season. Mm. She wrote it to be Van in Paris. She now has a, a Parisian accent, a French accent. And the girl from one of the, the Drake episode in season two shows up uh, to do some weird stuff. In, in <laughs> and it's a business trip. Yeah. Yeah. And, and she runs into her old friend Van, who now has a French accent and no longer American and is doing all this really strange stuff, potentially selling drugs. She is beating people up with a baguette. And uh, she keeps asking her, What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's going on with you? And then finally, Van drops the accent and, and has like a, a psychological breakdown. And starts screaming and throwing things. And she admits to being, you know, kind of having an identity crisis and, and being a bad mother and not really knowing what she's doing there. And I just thought that that was, I, I felt when I had messaged you before I watched it going, I, I have so much anxiety about watching this because I just wanted a little bit of closure, like to a little bit of something to grab onto. Mm-hmm. And I felt like just getting that piece of information about, okay, this is Van's journey. I had heard it said that while in the season two episode at, at Drake's house, she was the tag along to her friend. In this mm-hmm. episode, her friend was tagging along to her as she was trying to take control of her life. Mm-hmm. And then in the end credits scene, 
we have Earn receive a package from somebody. We don't know who, just a duffel bag that has a bunch of stuff in it. And one of the things in the bag is a framed picture of a white family. Uh, the father figure of that family is the same guy from the boat from the first scene that you were describing earlier. And, and he's also the uh, the guy that the dad has the conversation with in the hotel bar in episode four, the big payback, the reparations episode. I know. That's the same guy. Yep. Because he says, my name is Ernest with an E. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And they lost my bag. And then he falls into. He shoots himself in the head. So. Yeah. But he falls into the pool, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Yep. I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yep. So it brings the question like, are all these tangential episodes related? Are they a dream or are they actually happening within the world that we're watching? And I thought that that was kind of a genius move. I think I think it is. I think it's all of those things, quite yeah. possibly. Yeah. I'm leaning more toward these are the things that are happening, you know, back home in Atlanta as, you know, the four of them are, you know, trotting around Europe. These are the things that are still happening because, you know, life in the state still goes on. These things are still happening. So, yeah, I could I can definitely see that being a parallel timeline to what we're looking at with the main cast. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, though, the whole point of the show is to inflict that feeling of something's not quite right, like something's off and to try to give you the experience of what it means to feel like you're living in an absurd but real situation, you know? Mm -hmm. And I kind of get what you say when you, you felt tensed up because mm -hmm. you're not, not necessarily, I don't think because you didn't have the context, but you were looking at something, I think that was probably ringing a bell somewhere in the back of your head that yeah. this is kind of familiar, but it's making me a little uncomfortable. And that's the idea. Like truth is uncomfortable. Even yeah. if you're looking at it like this with a little dash of black humor thrown in mm -hmm. here and there, mm -hmm. there's still some, some truth in it universally, I think for all of us. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. <laughs> One of my worst fears, it's like a reoccurring dream that I have is being inside of a house during like nighttime and having just people like strangers come and put their, their face up against my window and just like peer into my window. <laughs> Thank and you. That's nightmare fuel for me. Thank it's, you. <laughs> but it's <laughs> sorry, but it's just, it's realism, but it's just absurd enough to like, throw it off a little bit off kilter. And, and that's the stuff that really gets me. I think this show has deeply affected me on a, on a very deep and personal level. Spiritual. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I, um, I generally think that's the idea. I mean, yeah. not just for folks that don't necessarily see themselves in it, but for, you know, those who do as well, mm -hmm. if it makes you stop, if it makes you question it, if it makes you wonder what else do I need to know to be able to operate in this world? If it makes you do any of that, then I think it's done its job, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah. So, but I mean, overall, I'm getting the sense that you guys enjoyed it. So, oh, yeah. Love that's you. a win. Yeah. <laughs> that's definitely a win. It's really hard to not love it. I, I think it's one of the coolest things I've seen in a long time. It's like mm -hmm. one of the most artful things. And I'm, we're both appreciators of, of high art. And I think this is definitely one of the highest arts out of the last couple of decades. Uh, you don't find stuff like this very often. And all the you don't. Yeah. All the, it got so experimental in the third season in particular. I know it was pretty divisive, I think, amongst fans, right? Because it broke away. Not just in its divergent plot lines, but all the other risks they took. I, I personally, I think it was, you know, brilliant. Um, 
but I understand why it would be a bit more hotly contested. And Donald Glover has said like it, it's gotta be an extraordinary situation when you say, or when you have people that are like, this is the best season of television I've seen in a long time. And then some people are like, Oh, this is trash or or mid. (laughs) Yeah. I've, I've definitely seen a lot on both sides of it. So I get it. I get where people would have trouble with it, but some people are looking for the negative things. Some people want to give it a fair chance. It's just, it's all subjective in the end mm-hmm. anyway. But mm-hmm. personally, I'm glad you guys loved it. I know I loved it. I'll probably binge watch it again, probably two more times before the last season comes on later on this year. So oh, yeah, definitely that. It's a truly extraordinary piece of work and uh, not soon to be forgot. It has left its indelible mark, I think, in cinematic television history definitely Uh, time will tell i think you know whether it's meets the heights of the sopranos and twin peaks in terms of its place in history but right i think uh i think it uh, donald glover and hero and all those writers have a pretty remarkable piece of filmmaking yeah we also forgot to mention alexander skarsgård appears in the last episode oh yeah as himself yeah as a version of himself kind of like nick cage and massive talent Yep, or Liam Neeson. And he he likes, he has some kinks. (laughs) Yes. And then at the end, we didn't even mention the hands, but yeah. It's like, uh, let me get some of those hands. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, but. It's crazy. Well, we really appreciate you being here today. I couldn't have imagined, honestly, a better person to come on this episode and talk about this with us. I feel like you were honestly a godsend. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and thank you guys for having me. Yeah. I know we, we're all learning new things today. So yeah. that's great. <laughs> yeah. That's we great. would love to have you on again too. Anytime if you ever like, hey, have you seen this? Or if you want to reach out and connect over something, doesn't necessarily have to be as socially uh, hot button, but, <laughs> but yeah, we'd love to have you on again. Okay. I thank you guys for having me again. I really appreciate it. This is a great talk. Oh. I have to, uh, you know, report my total and enthusiastic enjoyment to my co-host to let him know. So, awesome. Can you think of any song that we could play here, Gabe? Before we sign off? Oh gosh, I, the soundtrack for the season is is a friggin' smash. But off the top of my head, I have like two tracks from the beginning of um, the episode, yeah, Al's episode, where he's one in New Jazz. Yeah, Darius preps himself and Al a playlist as they begin to walk around oh, high. Right. Yeah, yeah. And uh, there are a couple songs in the beginning of that episode I think would be perfect here. Sweet. Here's a, here's one of those tracks. Thank you, Donald Glover and Hero and uh, Stephen Glover. Yeah. And, and everyone else involved. Here's to uh, season four. Yep, soon. Whatever will await us there. 